Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. an Australian author who loves to write passionate and provocative romantic fiction. She writes in the early hours of the morning and works as a pediatric neuropsychologist by day. A happily married mum of two teens, an eclectus parrot, and a rascally cavoodle, she loves to indulge in a good story and escape into a character's happily ever after. She's a firm believer that a bath, a green tea, and chocolate take a book from great to perfect. Beverly Oakley is an Australian author who grew up in the African mountain kingdom of Lesotho, emigrated to South Australia when she was young, and married a Norwegian bush pilot she met while managing a safari lodge in Botswana's Okavango Delta. Her romance writing career began as a way to amuse herself in the 12 countries she's lived as the trailing spouse of a pilot husband and when she worked as an airborne geophysical survey operator in the back of low-flying Cessna 404s and CASA 212s, often the only female crew member in remote locations around the world. Beverly writes historical romance as Beverly Oakley. Her first release under her new pen name, B.G. Nettleton, is an Africasette romantic suspense set in the rugged mountains of Lesotho in the early 1960s, featuring, you guessed it, a ruggedly handsome bush pilot. Alison Stewart began her writing career halfway up a tree in the school playground where she wrote her first unpublished historical romance. Today, she is both an independent and traditionally published author who writes historical romances and short stories set in England and Australia and across different periods of history. She's best known for The Postmistress and The Goldminer Sister, stories set in the Victorian goldfields in the 1870s. She also writes historical mysteries as A.M. Stewart, and her popular Harriet Gordon mystery series is set in Singapore in 1910. Now a full-time writer in her past life, Alison worked as a lawyer across a variety of disciplines, including the military and emergency services. She has lived in Africa and Singapore and, when circumstances permit, travels extensively, all for research, of course. She lives in Melbourne with her husband and one elderly cat and sincerely hopes that at least one of her four grandchildren will one day share her love of history. Today we dive right into a fabulous conversation with Alison, Beverly and Lexi about their experiences with both traditional publishing and self-publishing as well as bouncing between the two of them. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I think sort of one of the certainly my experience is that even when you think you've made it and you've got that yes. big traditional publishing contract, it's no guarantee that um, that you've made it. You know, you they'll drop you like <laughs> right. Well, and you're back. You start again, and you just reinvent yourself. So I think that's quite an important point to make. Well, Alison, can you tell us a little bit about that? You don't like I said, you don't have to name any publishers, but what got you to where you're at right now? You're 
your indie uh, publishing your first this is your first indie publishing oh no 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 i've been indie publishing for a long time oh, but um amazing um out to cut an extremely long story short <laughs> i actually ended up with two two book contracts from two different major publishing houses at the same time oh wow <laughs> one of whom was in the u.s one here in australia and the u.s one there were both two two book contracts and I thought, my God, I've made it, you know. <laughs> oh, who do I choose? So I, I went with both of them. And one was a four book mystery series. And uh, that was the one in the US. And it sold okay. I've paid out my, you know, paid out my advances, but came to the contract for the fourth book and dropped like a hot potato. So, wow. you know, that's my experience. And it was a big, it was one of the big five publishing houses. I think I, okay. I named it in the, in the talk. In the group. Before, yeah, I was going to say, potentially one of the, Top top. Yes. <laughs> Within yes. the big five, evermore. Soon to become one of the big three, yes. whatever it's right. going to be. Whatever yes. is going to yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think I think that sort of I think why people are still striving for traditional publishing, mm-hmm. it's not the be all and end all, and you do have to keep reinventing yourself. Along it's certainly the not the way to make money. <laughs> oh no! Well, I can't complain about the money I made while I was being published by them, but yeah, it's uh... well, it's the lead money, right? So yeah. if yeah. your advance is good. Oh, well, you know, great. let me, let, you let me tell you about the advance. They split the last advance into four. I'm oh. still waiting on the last fourth installment and the book was published in March. So it's not oh, so much wow. an advance as an arrears. <laughs> wow. Can I ask a question? We haven't even gone into this at all in the podcast series yeah, yeah. yet, but do each of you have agents? I do. You do have an agent. Yeah, I do. Okay. I, a very good U.S. agent, top one of the okay. top U.S. agents. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is that a female? I just don't yes, want to use the yes. wrong pronoun. We'll get her onto it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and look, she's she's yeah, she's done everything she can she can do. It's yeah. uh, I mean, it's not just me. It's I'm, I'm a yeah, fish in, I'm a very small right. fish in her goldfish bowl, but uh, right. uh, all her big authors too, and they're all leaving. You know, people are not signing now with this house because the reputation's so bad. Amazing. Okay, see, so here's how we do it without. <laughs> Well, so that's interesting. So Alison's story is did do traditional publishing and you've done self-publishing before that, but had a couple of, I'm just going to wrap it to a couple of traditionally published. And now at least with one book, we're going to continue the series because what I appreciate about the writers I've seen, maybe you like to do this for yourself and or the readers. It's actually for the readers because it's a, because it's a mystery series. It's actually got a series arc. Right. And I left I left the third book on a cliffhanger. You know, hello. How mean was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't do it. Well, we and, as and readers, I'm, we appreciate I've been that. getting two or three emails every week from readers going, <laughs> when's the next book coming out? And I was waiting. And I mean, it took them nine months to tell me they weren't going to publish me. Mm. And now I've gone back. I've gone to my readers and said, look, I'm, I've been dropped and I am going to indie publish the fourth one. And I've just been inundated with supportive yeah. emails from the readers saying, oh, thank Thank you so much because we really we really need to know how this story ends and they're, they're tired of authors who who get dropped then just don't finish the series because that, that's that's that the advice you get is oh just put it behind you move on to the next thing well I can't I couldn't do that oh. I didn't need to do that so uh, I suppose if that's what somebody wants for example if they'd been contracted and it was more of a commissioned scenario and they aren't attached to it Maybe they would want to not do it. I don't know. That doesn't, that's not I can't integrity I can't for me. <laughs> so I don't I think, look, I I think it, 
think it depends a hell of a lot on where you are in your career and you know if you are if you're sort of st- which I'm not still young and and still hungry and still you know and still I, I'm still after that next best thing whereas I'm quite happy now I've sort of done what I wanted to do and which was get published by traditional publishers and, mo- and I'm quite happy to sort of puddle now and I've got my I've still got my publisher here in Australia who I love and happy to keep working for them and doing a bit of indie on the side so that that's kind of where I am sorry I feel like I'm dominating that's okay though it kind of leads me to Beverly I was going to ask you and only because again our mutual friend and we've been introduced multiple times and this is the first time we're meeting tell me a little bit about your experience with indie publishing because it feels like some of the things that Allison was just sharing and especially when it comes to readership and that relationship that you have tell me what your experience has been with self-pub I was traditionally published for my first book with a smaller publisher, but they had the library market throughout the Commonwealth. And I had been in a critique group for a number of years. And there was a lot of criticism from the husband of a couple that, or one of them, that my 200 pounds advance was an appallingly small amount. So, but I was very early in my career and desperate to get published. But the public lending rights and the that I earned from that book Plus, when I got the rights back after two years and indie published at the beginning of indie publishing in around 2011, that £200 was so worth it because I then did a couple of more books with that publisher. And it's always this little golden goose egg every year when I get the public lending right. Then I had a, a second. So that was what got me into indie publishing after the, the rights rever, reversion at that critical time. Mm. But I was I won a competition for, was a search for an Australian start called, was the name of the competition from a UK publisher who was launching into Australia. And I got a decent deal with that. I thought I'd never get my publishing, my rights back. But the stipulation was that I could only use my Beverly Eichley name and I could only publish one book a year. So that wasn't going to enable me to make enough as a writer. So that then required me to take up a pseudonym. So I took up the pseudonym Beverly Oakley and I wasn't even allowed, I had to separate the type of writing that I contractually. So it yes. launched me into a different type of uh, historical romance line at the time, the hotter ones. And, you know, that was the fashion there and it's toned down a lot to, <laughs> to be. There was a wave around there, not just within that genre, but I sold a trilogy myself. Mm-hmm. and had publishers reaching out so I get we get yeah. it. it there was yeah. a, quite a little spike it was a real spike yes then but now 2012 yeah but now thankfully that sort of you there's a lot of scope with your how you're comfortable writing and I write anything across the, the heat levels depending on the type of story and I have so much fun with my pseudonym the traditional was great in some respects but it's the indie publishing that enables me to not have to have a day job whereas oh, I couldn't have done that traditionally published I think it's really interesting. And the money part can be really challenging. Again, in the podcast, we've never really gone into it. But when you look at it and my experience as an agent, you're lucky as an author to get the 10%. That should be the minimum. It often is not where they try to start you. And I've actually seen less 
not a contract that I negotiated or dealt with. I suppose, depending on who you are, you could get it bumped up. And they do have some where it's graduated uh, increase in royalties, but then the pressure really feels like it's on you. And that's graduated royalty percentage for thousands and thousands of copies. And there have been a lot of things, I'm dating the, the podcast here when I say this, there have been a lot of things in the news lately, especially around the acquisition of Penguin Random House with Simon and Schuster mm. and how many copies sell. All that to say, you can't give necessarily because it's a very wide swathe and I don't think the statistics are accurate. But suffice to say, it can be tough because there are so many books to get the thousands and thousands. So lots of people think that they're doing very poorly if they've only sold 5,000 copies. 5,000 copies is good. It is actually good. Oh, what were you going to say, Alison? Sorry, just to interrupt there. Uh, Certainly my experience was it's it's not just 5,000 copies. They only look at your print copies, your print sales. Right. So, you know, I might 55% of my sales were eBooks and sort of 15% were audio books. So I wasn't selling that many print books. There's been a lockdown in the, you you know, every yeah, I'm a victim of COVID. But but because, because the print sales were down, that was it. That was that was it. That was the nail in the coffin. Yeah, I think it's it's really hard. You can understand too, because as each Mm. of you, and then we're going to talk with Lexi as well, publishing is a business. The goal that most writers have would be, hey, I'd like to get paid to write. That sounds amazing to me. So there is that understanding. However, I think what you've already shared, both of you, is that the empowerment that you have, you've had, I used to call it gravitas. There's an egoic thing, but also it's just true. You know that if somebody's got an they're not a celebrity. If somebody has gotten a traditional publishing deal, that means that their writing is good enough for a certain level. I would say it's probably excellent because still writing and the critique of that is subjective, but I get it. But now you've got that tick. Enough people like my writing tick. I've got the traditional deal. And now if you take those Writes back, Beverly, I'd love to, after we chat to Lexi, talk a little bit more about, again, the agent in me, rights reversion and how that came about, right? But taking that, and then both of you have been sharing about a relationship that obviously you're having and building with your readers, which does have a massive effect on how successful and how you can pay yourself to be a writer. Lexi, do you ha- can you share a little bit about your experience with indie and or traditional publishing and where you're at now? I haven't been traditionally published, okay. so you know, I took Beverly's guidance who at that point in time was saying indie publishing is the way to go and I have been trying to get published with a big publisher and writing a particular kind of story and maybe it wasn't perhaps the right fit in the end but I just was very set on it so I only ever submitted to one publisher and if you're rejected that's it that story's done so then you try a different one and it would take a long time that one story they asked for revisions and I still haven't heard back and I think that was a decade ago so (laughs) welcome to the world of like missing communications yeah, yeah, and it would take, I mean, you're only allowed to submit one story at a time and it would take like a two-year process before you knew that you were rejected. So, wow. yeah, that was a, so I don't think that would be everybody's experience perhaps, but it was my, but there was this really extended delays, which I don't know. Anyway, they very much encouraged me to try self-publishing and she 
I always struggled with a lot of self-doubt and because I didn't have that validation of having been picked up by a traditional publisher, which I really wanted to just reassure myself that my writing was good enough. And I did enter competitions, so I knew that my writing was okay, it's finaling or winning or second. So I know my writing was sort of okay, but I still didn't feel very confident about putting it out. And I remember Bev saying that let the readers decide Get some yes. genuine reader feedback about your books. And if it's bad, just take them down and get back to work, you know. So it was very much this try and see how you go kind of feel. And it's still a process because in the process of writing series, because within the publishing, the recommendation very much is it's yeah. better to have a series in terms of trying to promote or advertise. So my initial effort was just to test the water in a novella, in a box set with other authors that I've been invited to try. And the feedback wasn't, it was good. So it wasn't terrible. So I, then I thought, okay. So I tried putting out some of my, and I did them all properly with a proper artist for a cover. I had them edited by a, a recommended editor multiple times. I had them proofread. I put out a professional product as much as I could with also my critique partners, reassurance and encouragement, which I needed. <laughs> I really wasn't sure. And I think doing that, I was able to put out a box set of my own stories. I, I worked out a, you know, a linking theme and did it that way. And now I'm writing my series. So I'm just about to start writing this third book. And I haven't spent a lot of money on promotion yet because I really think I need the series, not so much the linked books, but a series, a connected series. So I'm waiting. I don't want to invest too much in promotion to life. And Bev would disagree with me on this, but that's just my self-doubt again. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'm just going to add to it and say from the outside that the sooner you can start the conversation with them rather than have the whole thing. Look, all of us have experienced too the way we consume, whether it's books or television, we love a binge. And sometimes the thing you need to do is get people on the hook. And it isn't just about being manipulative, but it's about building that relationship over time. Again, if we go back, it is about the readers, isn't it? Yeah. I love one thing that you just said, Lexi, too, that Beverly was encouraging you on is put it out there. And if it doesn't work, you can take it back. What a beautiful item for the prose column. You can put a book out there and we're not just talking typos, but goodness knows, even if you've had people and another person and another person, another person read it, there are going to be typos and things you want to change and you you can be mortified. If you have self-published, you have capacity to make a change, but including change and ending, or you recognize something after. Having said that, you know, it's not like anybody has got time or bandwidth to go in and do it all the time, but that's just not something that's available to writers who traditionally publish. Even if they were traditionally publishing and it were a print on demand or a POD sort of scenario, you just can't do it. They've got it out there and that's it. What a beautiful option. If you see, especially in a series, you've gone and I gesticulate and use my hands. So pardon for listeners, but I'm saying veering off track using my hands. If you find you've gone a certain direction, and you're getting reader feedback from loving readers, by the way, not trolls that are on Goodreads, <laughs> actual good critical readers who love you and love your work and say, oh, I was confused about that. I'm also really heartened to hear about the time 
and energy that you put into not only having a professional cover design, but having it edited and proofread. And again, there's a spectrum of levels of people that you can use, but it isn't exclusive to people traditionally published and getting a really good edit. And there is not a single writer on the planet. I don't care who they are that should go without an edit. <laughs> they all need editing. That's what Nora Roberts says too. And, well, just thank God. I know that there are some people who don't follow my advice, which is write your way through the first draft as quickly as you possibly can based on your own writing style. I recommend people don't worry about editing. In fact, I say avoid it keep in the typos, whatever, start to finish, get there. However, I understand there are also people who are so practiced that they can write a clean first draft or Dean Koontz who, look, he's got enough books. He can do it how he wants to do it. He knows he's going to finish, but he says he'll edit a single page until it's right. That makes my heart clench a little because I think if you've gone through an edit or as many edits as I've gone through with writers, what if that entire chapter goes? Who cares if you have a perfect page, which is why I have that advice. But having said that, even if you are a clean writer, right? And you're able to do all the editing without over editing or stopping yourself in the middle of creating, still going to need an editor, right? So as long as you are actually putting your work out there in front of other people, you needn't worry as much about that ego stroke or gravitas of a traditional publisher. You guys have each already shared why that is because a traditional publisher isn't choosing based solely on the quality or the value of the writing, but on the value that they will get from the writing. And they're making a guess, right? So even with your book, Allison, I'm thinking, I mean, travesty. Three books in, you've got the fourth one. You're going to tie up loose ends. And I don't always need a, a tie up, but if we're looking for a, a story arc and a character arc, how painful <laughs> to say, no, let's just cut it off here. We're three quarters of the way through. But being able to deliver that to people, I think is so important. And again, part of that contract that you've created with the readers that you've built over time without having to worry about this publisher. So one of the reasons perhaps isn't just on physical sales, but sometimes the inner workings of the publisher, they've decided to go another direction and has nothing to do with you. It's like, we're just not publishing, I'll just say commercial women's fiction as much anymore or chiclet. Can I just put in there? Also, if you're publishing into the US, there's some big changes that have been happening around the way books are sold, the way Barnes & Noble has changed its purchasing Mm. policies, for example. So instead of it being a centralized purchasing, it's now store only. And so that's, that's again, limiting the the sort of, they'll, they'll, buy the books that they think are going to sell they're not going to buy the smaller series like the historical mystery series so you're 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 subject to a whole lot of a whole lot of influences that are out of your control you can write the best book in the world but if it's not fitting in that neat sort of railway line that uh, the publisher has planned for you then that's look it's just the way it goes it's I've been in this business a long time now and I'm, I'm not devastated but I was devastated for my readers because I knew that they were hanging out for that fourth book and that that's what and let me just say it doesn't matter if you with a traditional publisher your book can still go out with typos (laughs) that's what I'm saying 100% the number and again it's the way our brain works yeah yeah. I I find it confounding because it's happened time and time again I have done proofreads for people after it's been proofread by somebody else and edited 
multiple times. And still there you are pulling it off the bookshelf at the shop and you're, oh my God, (laughs) shut the book, put it away. But it happens. It does. And I think the important thing too is to distinguish between different types of editing too. There's the important edit for me is that structural edit. That's where it goes to the editor who says, I really love your book, but change this. Mm. And then of course, after that comes all the copy editing and the line editing and all that. And every single one of those is as an important step as the initial structural edit. And I think a lot of that kind of gets missed by a lot of indie authors. Um, they'll, yes. they'll have a big edit and then they'll think, oh, well, I can do the rest. And you, you do need those cold hard eyes to pick up those missing commas and misspelled words and which right. spell check doesn't pick up. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a process. It's a long process. I think too, it's funny, maybe some people, depending on the, the advance that they were thinking of getting, and by the way, for everyone listening, advances are <laughs> again on a spectrum. They've changed dramatically in the past 10 years as well. And I would say we're all talking from within Australia. They've definitely gotten lower. There are pros and cons to that as well, by the way. I think a lot of pros to not necessarily having a massive advance because number one, as you'd said, Alison, you earned out your advance. And that's something that can make you feel good, right? It's it's one measure that you can take. But also there is pressure, especially for a multi-book deal when you've sold it beforehand and there's beauty to it. In, in the US, especially, I think people are used to hearing about six-figure deals. And that can be great. However, I'm also going to champion the creator and that can put a lot of pressure on you, right? Mm. You're no longer coming from a place of, I want to write this, which you have a lot more of if you are going to indie publish, uh, whether you started out thinking you were going to indie publish or not, you can come from a place of this is where it's created in my heart and I want to do it rather than having to say, oh, well, the market shifted a little. Can you put a werewolf in it? Nobody should be writing from that place. And I'm not saying honestly that anybody says that, although I'm pretty sure somebody probably would, but they're not a, a person I would align with. But sometimes the people People who are looking at the bottom line in publishing, and I'm not judging it one way or the other, but they're going to be swayed by the market that they think they're going to hit. So they might tell you as a creator, can you just do this? I'd always rather you err on the side of what was the story? The story will tell you what to put in. That's outside of that structural edit you were talking about, Alison, Mm -hmm. which I think to your point, is a really important part. Not just saying, no, whatever I dreamt up first is the best version and it's complete and stuff that you can't give me feedback, but more if you're a reader and a structural editor is one of your first readers, perhaps, they're telling you if they don't get it and if they don't get it and you've got a hole, you want somebody to tell you to plug it in. Absolutely. yeah. Right? Before you put it out there. I'm curious too for you, Beverly, anything between, and I wanted to get back a little bit to that reversion of rights. Now, did you ask to activate those or were they automatically after, was it two years, the rights are reverted to you? That original contract was to years and it didn't include ebooks because that was not yet a thing. Mm. So when I was approached by the publisher to take the ebook rights for one of the books, I said, yes, sure. And then excitedly (laughs) and within a couple of months saw what they put out and that I was getting such a tiny proportion of the ebook royalties. And I thought, oh, but I can do that. I was learning as things were going along. So I put up my book at the same time and suddenly 
my book that I had that ebook there it was in print and that was a whole different story but the now in tandem I was doing one ebook that they were looking after and one book that I was and my earnings were just going like this back this was back in about 2012 I think yes so that was quite a a revelation so I just followed the learnings I suppose in in the marketplace and as soon as I could but the rights reversion was for the second publisher it was under a certain amount of copies sold and after a couple of years, well, I found that obviously when the book first went out, the money, marketing money was thrown at it. And I had a publicist that was in glossy magazines and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. But then the next month happened and the interest left my book. And now I couldn't afford to pay myself to advertise it. It wasn't worth mm. it, it felt. And when my book started to lose momentum, after a couple of years, I thought, I'm close to getting my rights reverted. This is fantastic. But then they'd put it into a 99-cent deal so that that would get the... Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the I, I want to say, if I say sneaky, I don't mean it in an underhand way, but this is, again, why anytime you sign a contract, definitely have somebody who knows a little bit about it or yeah. in your local area, wherever you're listening to this in Australia, we've got the Australian Society of Authors. Get some advice if you haven't got an agent. So they're looking out for you because these little things a single line within termination or version of rights can give them another couple of years it has to you want to definitely have that very clear because as you learned Beverly what a huge difference now most of the time ebook royalties are higher than print book royalties, but not as much as they should be, if we're honest, because there's like virtually no overhead (laughs) for that, which is why it would have been so attractive to be earning almost all of the money for the ebook that you owned outright. So what happened with that one where it was then they bundled it for a 99 cent bundle and then they still had it. They didn't start the top of the clock over again. It did Uh, because I had signed away life copyright. I stupidly, I had resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to get it back. But then a number of other authors with the same publisher started to agitate and I wrote on their coattails and thanks to them, I did get my rights back. Amazing. Mm. I think it's worth having conversations as part of the reason for this podcast, not just because I love writers just chatting, (laughs) having conversations. They're really, really fascinating, but also because when we share things like that, we demystify a lot of what happens and you can feel like you're on your own. And like, you don't know, or I shouldn't ask anybody else, or what if this other very successful author thinks I don't, or I made a big mistake and I just have to suck it up. Certainly as women, I really don't want any of us to do that. Um, it's really good to chat. And you can always start with the soft conversations with friends that, that you know, before you jump on board. But I'm so glad that you had others that you could link arms with and get those rights back so that you could get that money. What it, how's it felt? And Alison, you had, like you'd said, experience before traditional publishing with self-publishing and then back. Is that right? And does it feel any different now? I mean, I know this, this new one is because you've got that relationship with the readers and you're like, nah, (laughs) I 
I'm going to finish this story. Well, I go, I go back a bit further than Beverly. I, I had um, yeah. had a couple of books that were published with a small e-press in the US back in 2007, 2008, before e-readers were invented. So, you know, right. who, who was ever going to read these books? <laughs> so surprisingly, they didn't do very well. And I was able to, I, I asked for my rights back and they, I got them. And so they just sat in the cyber sock drawer. And people started asking me about these books. I thought, oh, well, I'll do a PDF and I'll stick them up on my website. And I started looking around and discovered that there'd been this company for uh, this business formed called Smashwords. Yeah. And their thing was, well, we will publish, we will distribute your books for you to all the major booksellers by Amazon. Amazon by that stage had also started KDP as well. So, uh, and I said, well, this whole world had opened up. I could actually sort of put the books up, but there was no industry around, no service industry about it. You know, these days you've got cover designers and editors and formatters and you've got a fabulous service industry you can call on. Well, there wasn't anything like that. So I had kind of my niece did my covers and I did the formatting to the best of my ability and uh, was all a bit rough. So, so that was back then. Now, as I said, there's this amazing, amazing professionalism that you can bring to indie publishing. At a recent conference I was at, there was the there was a traditional bookstore, but there was also an independent bookstore uh, book selling independent books. And to be honest, you could not tell the difference between the, the standard of the covers, or I, I mean, I didn't open them to sort of to see what the writing. Was like. <laughs> yeah. You know, judging books by covers, they were every bit as professional as uh, as as the books on the traditional stalls. So uh, it's it's. It's a whole is a whole world now that didn't exist back when indie publishing started. But there was a lot of prejudice against people who indie oh, published because yes. you were still seen as being a vanity publisher and uh, and you were really looked down on. And you, did you find that Beverly? Oh yeah, I tried to modify my language because indie public sorry well self publishing sounded yes. amateurish, but there was a bit more cachet to indie publishing. But you know semantics, semantics. It was I did. Yes, it's just I think that my feeling is that in the last few years because, well, because perhaps romance authors were shut out of certain things for a long time, they became early adopters of the technology and since mm. they've proved so good at it and have started making good money the respect that is paid to them now by you know across the board is is much greater because it's more a question of it doesn't matter what you write it's how well you write it which is proved by how well you connect with your readers and how they support you and keep buying your books so right. that's where the respect comes in I think I think so I think there is still a bit of snobbery but again, it's subjective. So there's a very famous, I won't even say it, series that I don't think is well written. And I didn't read the whole series. But guess what? She doesn't care if I don't <laughs> think it's good or anybody else doesn't think it's good. And it got picked up by a big five publisher. I think one of the things, and I don't know if you've seen this, I read primarily commercial women's fiction and nonfiction. I love memoir as well. I always loved when I was younger, especially romance. I think you're right that the romance writers have a lot to teach everyone else who wants to indie publish because it's no longer about, is my writing good enough? If you want to win awards, that's great. If you want to book a prize or a Pulitzer, or you go for it. However, if you really want to get paid for your writing, find the readers of your writing. And that's what romance writers have done really well. And they can niche 
and they can have subgenre after subgenre that I would never even imagine what sorts of subgenres and they <laughs> do it and they do it really, really well. So that's where I think the snobbery should finish. And most of them, again, are not losing sleep because they're getting money in their bank account. Uh, Brian Sanderson, who I think writes fantasy, could be sci-fi. I don't read either of those much, but this was called a blip. It's not. Millions of dollars. He obviously has readers. He gets in touch with his readers. He did a Kickstarter campaign and made 15 million. I don't know. It's maybe more by now from his readers to say, I'm going to publish this four book series and you pay me. You wouldn't get that. You couldn't get that from a publisher. <laughs> Dean Koontz isn't getting that from a publisher. James Patterson isn't getting, they're getting other things. Uh, but even Dean Koontz has got book deals with publishers that in the past you wouldn't have thought he'd go with. And some of it, I heard an interview with him specifically down to marketing, right? So it's not about the size of the publisher including if it's indie or self-published yep. and you're doing your marketing, which by the way, everyone has to do now, even traditionally published needs to market themselves. Beverly, your story was really great in outlining the way that traditional publishing has a certain bandwidth for marketing. If they do it really well, you're lucky within that time frame that they've got to get your readers. But by and large, I mean, there is a shift. It's just slow. They're still marketing the way they marketed, meaning they're doing it the way they used to do it with small shifts. Book talk, massive shift. Colleen Hoover would probably not be two or three out of the top 10 all the time if it weren't for alternative ways of marketing. So even for you, Lexi, I was thinking about the power and maybe the pressure that we feel to get that marketing budget in, but having a small marketing budget is still okay these days. It's about identifying who your reader is. It's a lot of great strategies that you can use, but ideally you need to have a number of books in a linked series. So you've then got a lot of room to play in terms of the strategies that you use. So I've done a lot of work listening to webinars and learning, you know, the best ways to promote and Amazon optimization, all of that. Yeah. But the fact is you really need to have what well, I believe you do anyway, a series with a number of books in it. I think it'll be it'll be the biggest bang for your buck eventually. There is that group. I don't know if all of you follow it, but what is it? 20 books 20 to books 50K. To I I love the concept as well, because anything that's going to empower writers to get paid for writing more, I do have to say, I probably hold my breath a bit when people are just talking about knocking books out super quickly. <laughs> Again, there are some people who can do it, but then I think about what you'd said, Alison, too. If you are doing it that quickly, you're not leaving a lot of room for the important things like editing. You could probably have a good book cover if you've mm -hmm. invested in that, but please, please, anyone listening to this podcast. If you don't already know me, please, please edit. There's nothing bad about it. <laughs> In fact, it will only make your writing better. It's not just about let me throw out as many books as possible in a short amount of time because the quality and connection that each of you is obviously made and continuing to make with readers is part of what will make that success. Alison, you've got this fourth book that you're having to put out because you are <laughs> being hounded. And even if it's gentle, loving hounding, people want to know how does the story turn out, but they'll only continue to be invested 
if you're delivering in a way that's at a certain level. Again, we're not all going to love the same books, but your readers do. No, that's true. And uh, to, to that end, I know I'm, I've got a very employed, a very good editor in the US who is ex the house that uh, I was in. Mm. It's not going. It's not going to be a cheap business to put it out. But for my own integrity and for and for what my readers are expecting. I feel I've got to make that investment. And I, I, I worry sometimes with newbie writers who think that they can just sort of put out a book every three months, that they're not doing exactly what you're just saying, is that they don't realise that it's quality as well as quantity. You've got you've got to get that right. Well, and that's going back to that thing you'd said too, Beverly, about you put it out there and then you want to tweak it. And I guess all of this to encourage you still, Lexi, regardless of what stage, wetting somebody's appetite to continue, that's also about getting advanced readers and that fan base even if it's a small but activated fan base so that some people will only get there after you've got the whole series out and then hopefully that helps anybody who's self-published reach that watershed moment i think of paulo coelho and the alchemist sold to a publisher eventually but then was just floundering just nothing and he actually had to get the rights back and they resold it it's one of those books that if anybody says now, and I'm sure there are still people as much as I can't imagine it, who have not heard it, heard of it or read it. And I think how there are always going to be new readers. And I think that's part of that last point about publishers. Again, slowly moving tide. When you're indie published, you have that agility to change what you're doing to reach the writers. Ultimately, it's not about necessarily getting glossy magazines to feature you. Book reviews can feel really nice. Then I get a little bit practical. I don't know if you guys are like this, but I just think return on investment. Whether it was mine from my actual pocket or the publishers, they've spent money and they're going to say, I outlaid this money. Is that resulting in how many copies? Or is it connection? Alison, you said something I thought that was interesting because I didn't necessarily know about the decentralization of Barnes and Noble. I've interviewed in the past for my group an account manager for one of the big five. And it's her idea that, and obviously her job backs this up, that the account managers, the most important relationships are between the publisher and the bookseller. Because the bookseller is going to individually sell books. It does make it a lot harder if a big publisher is no longer going to be able to do just a flat catalog sale, big box sales. Hey, Costco is going to run it as their, I don't know, Penny's choice. I think it is. Or, hey, great if they buy a big box. But what you guys are doing with Indie is you've got that one-on-one connection and then it's building and growing. Maybe some reviews, but somebody saying, ah. You know how you like that book. I just read this book. Word of mouth. Beat that. Mm. Word of mouth is huge. And I think that it feels more accessible if you have the power to put the book out, you're making the choice of the cover. So that's another thing. Alison, I'm sure that you'll probably try to somewhat match at least the vibe of the first three books, right? Mm -hmm. Both in the the editorial feedback that you get, but also in the look of it, because we do judge books by covers. And that's okay. (laughs) Distinctive looks. Um, 
Just on the engagement thing, I, I'm a firm believer that the best weapon in an indie publish an indie arsenal is their their email list, their readers list. Mm, yeah. I, I'm still growing. It'll always be growing. I know, I know, Beverly, you have a you have quite a large readers list. Yes, I started it years and years ago, not realizing at the time how valuable it was, yeah. and then for a long time didn't grow it and <laughs> didn't treat my my readers very well. And then I really value it now as of the past three years. And wish I had all the time, but yes, very valuable. It's not interesting. I'll have to have another because of course we're coming up. I don't want to overuse anybody's time. So conversation can be continued, but let's put a pin in that one. Definitely Beverly for another chat, because I know a lot of writers, whether they are traditionally or self-published experienced or emerging feel like, ah, what do I talk? How do I have a newsletter? What do I talk about in a newsletter? And I think the answers can, can be differing depending on your readership, but I love that you brought that up and highlighted that Alison with, with Beverly, especially because that, again, that's what we have control over. And when we're talking about pros and cons, that empowerment, not only the ability to control what version of your book is out there or not, but how you talk about it, who you talk to about it, how they engage with it, whether you give away a free chapter or three free chapters or run a contest. By the way, anyone traditionally published, check in with your publisher. They won't mind because even though we can say, yes, you're not going to make as much money on a per copy basis, it can be good other than choices like Alison outlined has nothing to do with the quality of the book or how much her readers want it. But really it's like a business decision um, that somebody has made like, yeah, we're not going to put any more money over there. But you have the ability to give those little spikes. Beverly, you were talking about it after that first month and getting glossy magazines and, and like I said, potentially reviews or media interest or going out to the libraries which can be good for after building yourself a little plan for how are you going to find ways to engage? We've talked about it in previous episodes. It's okay to choose the ways that feel okay to you. Play to your edge, which is one of my favorite sayings from a mentor of mine, which just means wherever your comfort zone is, it doesn't mean you have to do something that you hate because you're probably not going to show up the way that you'd like to anyway, if you hate it, but identify a few ways that feel fun to you and double down on that. Booksellers and libraries love it. And again, that's where you're going to get the word of mouth. I met the author. She was so great. And she paid attention to me. And she talked to me about like you are their um, celebrity, right? Even if you're not necessarily stepping into that yet, you can slowly and again, doing it the way that feels good, but you can't underestimate the power of connection Mm. with your readers. I would love to know from each of you, all things being equal, do you think you'd like to stay with indie publishing? Would you imagine split publishing or would you say... I'm still going to choose traditional publishing over indie book. Where do you all sit? And it's just for today. <laughs> no, no well, I'll, I'll start because I'm, yeah. I'm fairly, I'm, I am what I am. I am hybrid. I'm, I, I have got the best of both worlds in that, mm. I, as I said, love, I, I love my traditional publisher, but I do also like that, uh, that autonomy of being able to 
do indie books if I if I want to. So I I will go on be a hybrid author for you know till I get bored with it all and give it all up. And uh, <laughs> but yeah, as long as I've got stories to tell, I th- I think that suits me very well. That sort of half and half life. I love it. I think I would. Well, I'm completely uh, indie published at the moment. I would be really keen to try out for a a traditional publisher so that I can, I liked being hybrid, but, Mm. and because I like multiple streams of, I like having a foot in every camp. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I must be ADHD. I've decided. But <laughs> I don't think so. Try everything. Yes. I like that. What about you, Lexi? Well, at the moment, I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing. But yes, I like the validation of having made me had a deal with a traditional publisher. And I think that perhaps would trigger me to change the, the proportion of time that I'm giving to my writing versus the proportion mm. of time that I give to my day job. Like it would be a way of validating the amount of time that you're spending on your writing perhaps. I um, love that. But I think hybrid is a good way to go. What I do love about indie though is the freedom to write the story that I want to write. Mm. And I found it quite restrictive trying to write within a line and to make the line requirements. I really like being able to mix it up and just go where the story wants to go and bring in elements that I might not have been able to do if I'd been trying to fit in with the publisher's requirements. So I can, you know, you can write the story that you want to write. So I think that's the biggest bonus, I think, for me in terms of indie publishing. It's less restrictive. I love that. I love that each of you essentially has said hybrid. I think just to say we have varied tastes. And I don't want the same thing every day. And I like to have a different dynamic. I think, Lexi, you've brought up a good point as well. And it depends on who you are individually. I'm a big proponent of all sorts of personality type indicators. Anything that can give you more insight into yourself, not to change yourself, but to, to gain greater understanding. One of the ones that I really like is Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies. So if you haven't heard of it, check it out. I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes because it can be really helpful. You mentioned something there that, that reminded me of myself as an obliger, which is if there's something external to me, it just gives me that extra motivation. Like I know I will do it. So something that could take a year or two years. I was just having a conversation about my course, my online course. I had it outlined and just sitting there (laughs) to the side of my desk for a year before I recorded any videos or anything. And there was nothing shifting other than somebody was waiting for the video. And so I sat down and I did it. That's me. So knowing a bit more about yourself and what gets you to give the best of yourself whilst also reserving that piece. And I love that each of you have talked about this, having the freedom to write what you want to write as well. So not ever going fully over one way where you can't reserve some time to just write something because it delights you and you get to share the story that you want to, and you get to change what story you write. Nora Roberts and JD Robb and any other pseudonyms people want to use. What a beautiful gift to yourself and very successful as well. You just simply target the readership for that book and you're getting to spend the time creating the different worlds that you want to because it feels good to do it. I just want to say thank you so much to each of you for spending some time today. It was amazing. And hopefully we'll be able to get together again at some later date and chat in a different combination. The goal is really to let readers and writers hear some of the conversations. Maybe they don't have their great network yet. 
maybe they don't know any other writers and or maybe they're readers who have always dreamt of becoming a writer but felt like it was just too far out of reach. And I think each of you has shown how it is totally accessible, but you take some risks, you take some chances and maybe have a bit of fun with it. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Most enjoyable. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.